Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here was a dinner given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words this morning or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. And whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, first things first. Judas had a point. I know it. You know it. You don't want to admit it, so I'll admit it for you. Judas had a point. Maybe you don't agree with everything that he said. Maybe you don't agree with everything that he felt. But you have to admit, you would be pretty crabby if you had walked 13 miles from kind of this oasis that was in the middle of the wilderness. And if you had walked across the desert to the town of Bethany, and at the end of the day, you had come to a meal, and just as you were sitting down to enjoy the food that you had been walking and waiting for all day long, someone comes in and pours out an entire jar of perfume, so much that John tells us that the smell of it filled the entire house. So now you go to eat your food, and it tastes like perfume. And you would not be happy. Judas had a point. You would not have liked this at all. You're trapped in a room with this overwhelming scent, and isn't that the problem with scents? They just kind of get everywhere. Like if you see something you don't want to see, you just turn your eye. You just block your, if there's a sound that's unpleasant, you plug your ears. But when there's a bad smell, even if it's a really good smell that's just too much, there is no getting away from it. It is everywhere. You can try and hold your nose, but you're still going to taste it. And you can try not breathing, but that doesn't work very long. So Judas had a point. The thing about smells is you can love them, you can hate them, but you can't ignore them. And you don't want to admit it, so I'll admit it for you. You don't like things that you can't ignore. You don't like the things that interrupt you and insist on your attention. You don't like it when you're, you're in the middle of talking and someone interrupts you. You definitely don't like it when somebody does something that you can't ignore. It might be a distraction in worship that, that drives you a little crazy. It might be when someone ring, someone's phone rings at an inopportune time. It might be when your phone rings at all. Amen? Anybody here who's annoyed every time their phone rings? that's the thing about the phone is that it's this interruption. You had your plans, you had your things that you were doing. And here comes this thing that says, pay attention to me and admit it. 
there is no greater feeling than looking down at your phone and realizing that it's one you don't have to take and hitting that reject button. Like, that's just freedom, isn't it? That is power. You can't interrupt me. I can ignore you. It is one of life's great feelings. So we sympathize with Judas. We get where he's coming from. But of course, it's Mary who's the hero of the story. And I hope you see that that's a problem. I hope it makes you question some things. And specifically this morning, I'd like for us to look at three questions. How is rejection different than opposition? And secondly, what is the antidote to rejection? When it seems so appealing to us, at least as long as we're on the right side of it. And finally, how do we give attention to what really matters? That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. So, so buckle up. Let's just dive right in. How is rejection different than opposition? Before we see anything else this morning, we need to see that rejection is different than opposition. And sometimes it is even worse. And we need to be able to see how sometimes it feels worse to be rejected than it does to be opposed. And it is hard to see this precisely because the whole nature of rejection is that we don't see it at all when we do it. There's that famous scene from the TV show Mad Men. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, Don Draper, the, the successful or apparently successful businessman, is trapped in an elevator with an up-and-comer in the firm whose idea he has just shot down and made sure the client never saw. And this young up-and-comer, he's, he's kind of ticked at Don Draper. He's, he feels like Don Draper's a sellout, that he's uh, too corporate or whatever. And the young guy looks up at Don Draper and he says, I feel bad for you. I really do. And the successful anti-hero of the show looks at this young up-and-comer and goes, I don't think about you at all. That's rejection. That's not seeing. That is one of those things that makes us feel important or, or like we've got all the freedom in the world. It's one of those freedoms that we really cherish and that we want to hold on to. It's when you don't even have to bother arguing with somebody or answering, or listening to someone, because they're not even in your orbit. It's not a question of whether they're on your level. You might say they're your equal. You're not saying you're better. They're just not in your orbit. You don't have to see them. You don't have to deal with them. That is when you know there's some rejection going on. When you've realized that there is someone or something that you don't have to worry about because you've never even noticed. There's someone that you can barely even see. And one of the things that I've particularly loved this week is we've been reading together from Entering the Passion, the book that we're using in our small groups and in our devotions. Uh, the thing that I've really loved about Amy Jill Levine's writing in it is the way that she draws attention to a lot of things that are not particularly in our orbit, to a lot of details that we never really paid attention to. And she particularly helps us to see some details that have been in the Bible all along that many of us have not ever taken the time to notice. For example... It's common knowledge, but it's not very commonly said, and it's not often paid attention to, that Jesus' ministry was bankrolled by women. I don't know if that's ever come up for you. It's, it's right there. It's in the scriptures in the gospel of Luke chapter eight, where we are told that Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna, and then it says, and there were many other unnamed women who were patrons of Jesus's ministry. 
And then in Luke chapter 10, we're told that the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus was in fact a house that belonged to Martha. It belonged to her. It was her possession. And although we don't have any idea how wealthy Mary may or may not have been, what we do know is that in the story we just read, she was able to take a jar that was worth a year's wages, take the median wage of an American citizen. That's what it meant to them back then. And she just poured it all out on his feet. She had at least enough to be able to do that. And so if you have carried around an image in your own mind of women in ancient biblical Judea being these people who spent their whole lives dutifully and repeatedly carrying out a handful of repressive options as if they didn't have really any options in their society, then you might have been surprised this week in your reading to realize the amount of freedom that the women of Jesus' day and time had. They had the freedom to own property, to spend their money, to travel. They had all manner of rights, and all of them are right there in the Bibles. We read about it in all the scriptures. But for all that freedom, there is one thing that the women disciples do not often have in the Bible, and that is names. I gave you a few names, but most of the women in the scriptures are often lumped into phrases like, and many women provided for Jesus from their own resources. And I'm not saying that the gospel writers didn't care about the women's names. What I'm saying is that the gospel writers didn't have access to the women's names because the culture around them, the people who were telling these stories, had not taken the time to discover those names and to tell those stories. And so as these stories got told, they got told without the names included. And the gospel writers include names where they can, but oftentimes it's just many women or a woman or an unnamed woman. And throughout the Gospels, the women who are given special attention and special notice are the ones who tend to interrupt things. There was the bleeding woman. You may remember that story. Jesus is on his way to do another healing when a woman in the crowd reaches out to touch his cloak and he stops and everyone says, Jesus, we gotta hurry, what's going on? And he says, someone touched me and was healed and he pauses to see her, to call her out, to call her daughter. There's another time that we're told Jesus was on his way somewhere and uh, there was a widow in the city of Nain and her funeral procession cut Jesus off and drew Jesus' attention. He reached out his hand and raised her son from the dead. There was the Syrophoenician woman, the one who dared to debate Jesus and is the only person in the scriptures who got the better end of the debate with Jesus. And there was the time that Mary walked right to the front of the class. You might have heard this story. Same Mary that we heard from in today's passage. She walked right up to the front of the class and took a seat on the front row where all the male disciples were sitting. And you'll notice that we have precious few names for these women. And in fact, all the gospels tell the story of a woman who interrupted Jesus' meal and came and anointed his feet and dried it with her hair. But of the four gospels that tell the story, there's only one that includes her name. It's the gospel that we heard today, the gospel of John. Mary and all these women, they are ever present in the gospels. They are everywhere you look, but mostly the crowds don't think about them at all. They are not opposed, but they are rejected sometimes. They're ignored. They are sometimes treated by the crowds like that person that you thought about inviting to the group text 
But then you're like, nah. You aren't even going to, you aren't going to harass them. You're not going to gossip about them. You're not going to oppose them or oppress them. Mostly you don't think about them at all. It's kind of like how the disciples rejected Jesus' own teachings about how he would have to die. Time and again, Jesus told them. You notice this if you read the Gospels? Jesus is always saying, I am going to die. Three days later, I will rise from the dead, but I am going to die. And sometimes the disciples object and they say, no, no, we'll never let it happen. But mostly the time they just ignore Jesus when he says this. To the point that when it actually happens, many of them have forgotten that he ever told them. They refuse to hear it. They refuse to think about what it might mean. They don't want to think about it, and so they just don't. And sometimes they oppose Jesus when he, says, when he talks about dying, but mostly they reject the notion altogether. They don't want to pay attention. And here at the end of Jesus' campaign, after all his ministry of teaching and healing, after all of his warnings about what is going to come, it is Mary who has paid attention. She is the one who knows to prepare his body for burial. She is the one who knows what needs to be done because she has been paying attention. And Jesus pays attention to her and understands exactly what she is doing. He says, do not bother her. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. You will not always have me. Mary sees and Mary understands and she gets it because she's been paying attention. And today I want us to understand that attention is the antidote to rejection. Attention is the antidote to rejection. And isn't that why so many of us give up something for Lent? Because we want to pay a little bit more attention to something that we had otherwise kind of kicked out of our mind. Aren't we trying to raise up our own attention to our habits and our coping mechanisms and, and all the things that we often go to to avoid giving our full attention to God? It's a hard thing. No shade at anybody who's given something up for Lent, especially if you gave up something that you love. And if you're having a particularly hard time, I hope today is a day of celebration for you. You're over halfway there. It's almost done. But as hard as it is to give something up, it is an even harder and more holy thing to pay attention to all the things your habit has distracted you from. I mean, it's a hard thing to come to realize that you have come to rely on television or sweets or alcohol or social media because you're afraid of being left alone with your own thoughts and having to really pay attention. It's one thing to give up a distraction. It's quite another to really give your attention. And when Mary gives her full attention to Jesus, she ends up getting the attention of a lot of other people. She draws the attention of everyone that is around. She draws their attention to what's going to happen. Jesus is really going to die. You've tried to ignore it. You've rejected it. You've kept it out of your mind, but now you cannot avoid it. It is like the smell in your nostrils. She's preparing his body for burial. Judas didn't like that one bit. He resented being asked to pay attention. He resented her bringing up the thing he was happily ignoring. And so he reached for a distraction. Because that's often what we do when we don't want to pay attention, isn't it? He says, 
Couldn't this money have been given to the poor? I wonder if you ever do that. Do you ever reject what your neighbor is saying by offering a distraction that will let you think about anything else? It's a hard thing to pay attention. Most of the time, we'd rather not. Several years ago, in the city of Durham, North Carolina, there was an outbreak of gun violence. And the response of the city was mostly for the people who lived in that city to start driving around the areas where most of the gun violence was happening. Let's just not go there anymore. Just drive around, not see it. It's not on my doorstep. I don't have to pay attention. The response of one art community, though, was to go to the places that everybody else was driving around and to to fund public artworks on the sites of the shootings and of each murder. And the motto of the art guild became, if we can't make it good, we'll make it beautiful. And suddenly the city paid attention to the places that had been rejected. That's what Mary was doing. She couldn't make Christ's sacrifice good. She could not make it a good thing that we killed Jesus. But she sought to make it beautiful. She drew attention to it, to the cost of discipleship, of faithfulness that no one else wanted to see. And some folks did not like having their attention taken over like that. Some folks still missed the point. Some folks still didn't get it. But their attention didn't really matter, did it? Because she wasn't there to get their attention. She was there to give her attention to Jesus. And when she did, she discovered that he was giving his attention to her. And isn't that what worship is, really? Today, I want us to understand that worship is how we learn to pay attention to what really matters. It's how we surrender our attention to God. And when we do, we discover God's loving attention to us. Perhaps you remember an interview from several years back between Dan Rather and Mother Teresa of Calcutta, the great saint and missionary. Dan Rather came to her and and asked her about her prayer life. She said, he asked her, what do you say during your prayers? And she said, well, mostly I just listen. Rather than say, well, what does God say? And she said, mostly he just listens. And after a pause, she said, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. And I really doubt there's any sort of explanation that would have made Judas understand. He was bound and determined not to get it. There's very little that can make any of us understand what we'd rather ignore. And sometimes I worry that the church spends too much of its time trying to explain the unexplainable. We try and explain why it is we come to worship. We, we try and look for some tangible benefit. We try and say things like it gives us a certain feeling or it might make us, help us make a new friend or uh, we're hoping to break some habit or to fix our kids or our marriage or our finances. We, we come to worship hoping that it will do something that we can point to that explains this is the benefit But as long as we're looking for a sensible explanation for worship, we find ourselves a bit like Judas. We always wonder if there might be something better we should be doing. 
Is there something that would do those things we're looking for, but do it a little bit more efficiently? It would give us that feeling a little bit more quickly and consistently. That we get the result we're looking for in our lives just a little bit faster. And we often find ourselves going and looking for something besides church. You know, just to supplement. Just to take care of it. Uh, something that works without quite so many unwelcome distractions. Like that neighbor who frankly I have a hard time listening to. If you try hard enough, you can build a very tidy world for yourself and ignore God entirely in it. You might not even notice that there's something missing. And if you pay attention to God, you might find yourself doing all kinds of things that the rest of the world rejects. You might find yourself praying when the world is yelling. You might find yourself in the presence of folks that you would never hang out with otherwise. You might find yourself becoming generous, not because of what you get out of it, because you actually take joy in the giving of the gift. You might find yourself serving people who have nothing to offer you in return except that they carry the image of God and you might see it in them. And you might find yourself becoming a little bit more like Jesus for all the good that'll do you. You might find that in the course of this life of witness, Jesus has made you into someone who's just a little bit off. Just a little bit out of step with the rest of the world. You might find yourself paying attention to things that the world says don't really matter. Your life might become a work of art. And if you haven't noticed, a lot of the best art was rejected in its own time. To be a faithful disciple of Christ means we have to risk not only paying attention to the things that are often rejected in this world, it means that we have to risk living the sort of life that the world might just ignore entirely, that might be rejected. But if you care less about having the world's attention and more about giving your attention to God, then you do have this sure and certain promise. God will not reject you. And if the entire world Forget your name. The living God will not. And honestly, why would we let anything distract us from that? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.